Hello and welcome to Asia Perspectives by the Economist Intelligence Unit. I'm your host, Naka Kondo, Senior Editor at the Economist Intelligence Unit. It is Pride Month in June, and we would like to talk about a program The Economist has been running since 2015 called Pride and Prejudice. I'm glad to be joined by my colleague, Michael Gold, Managing Editor at the Economist Intelligence Unit, based in San Francisco. Michael has been leading our research on LGBT rights since the inception of Pride and Prejudice. Having lived in Asia for some years and now back in the U.S., he is the best person to talk to about the development of LGBT rights in Asia and how these changes are reflected in our research. Thanks for coming on the show, Michael. Thank you for having me. Now, first things first, how are you celebrating Pride Month? It must be different this year because of the pandemic. It's definitely still not quite back to normal. Um, being here in San Francisco, of course, was one of the first places in the world to celebrate Pride. Uh, so there's a long history here um, and a long tradition. But uh, there's no parade this year, unfortunately. That's always one of the most um, popular parts of Pride uh, because of pandemic restrictions. But there are still a lot of gatherings and um, in-person events are happening again this year uh, because we've uh, done pretty well with vaccinations. So it's really exciting to actually go to a bar and have a drink with friends to celebrate what is ostensibly the 50th anniversary of Pride. So it's definitely a happy um, environment, even though it's not completely back to normal. So you've lived in China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. You're really well versed with the ongoings um, of the things down in Asia. So how how is it been in Asia this year? Well, I don't know how Pride has been celebrated in Asia this year. I think things have probably been mothballed uh, to a similar extent as they were in much of the world in terms of in-person events. But in the past, um, there was definitely some... Uh, parades and some marches in different cities um, throughout China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong, particularly in Taiwan, uh, where there's a, a much more thriving and vibrant LGBT civil society and LGBT rights movement. There's a very large uh, parade and uh, sort of outdoor fest festival, but that's held every year in October. So it's a little bit different than what we ex experience here in the West, where June is Pride Month. It's, it happens more in the fall. Hong Kong also has a Pride Parade. It's a little bit more um, political and focused on changing the laws um, that uh, govern same-sex marriage and, and other restrictions on LGBT rights in Hong Kong. That takes place in November. And in China, unfortunately, there really isn't the um, scope for any major gatherings around Pride but they do host parties and other smaller events in many of the big cities where there are large LGBTQ populations. I understand that the Pride and Prejudice program started in 2015, while when you were still in Hong Kong. Um, how did it all start and evolve? So The Economist as a brand uh, has long been a champion of LGBTQ rights. And we were one of the first major media organizations back in 1996 to put 
same-sex marriage on our cover with the headline, Let Them Wed. So this was well before it became even a twinkle in the eye of many policymakers or even the average public. It was really kind of in the nascent stages of what has become a major shift in thinking around LGBTQ rights, at least in the West. So when we started this program in 2015, uh, the U.S. had just passed full marriage equality in the Supreme Court, and we really wanted to capitalize upon the energy that we were seeing um, around all different kinds of facets of LGBTQ equality and get people involved and stakeholders convened to tell stories and um, continue to advocate and really push the envelope forward. That uh, format of the event, which was launched uh, initially in March of 2016, included uh, a, a rolling 24-hour kind of nonstop uh, program of really compelling interviews and, um, and panels and discussions about LGBTQ rights that took place in New York, London, and Hong Kong. And uh, we did research for that, in, which was centered around a survey of executives about attitudes and opinions toward LGBT diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Um, and we launched the research at the event. And basically for the next three years, we continued that same format where we were doing global event um, between the three cities, including a research report, which I wrote and, and was the, um, the kind of mastermind behind. Um, starting in 2019, we took a little bit of a different approach because we were seeing that a lot of the energy and a lot of the impetus and the need for um, progress around LGBTQ rights was shifting from the West toward Asia. And we were seeing a situation in which we were things were kind of in a, a two steps forward, one step back, or one and a half step back pattern in a lot of Asian countries, where, for example, um, you had reversals um, from the Supreme Court in India, you had Taiwan that was on the path toward legalizing same-sex marriage, despite how contentious it remained on their political class and in, in various facets of society. And then you had some countries which were doubling down on restrictions on LGBT rights, such as Malaysia, even Indonesia, some of these really big countries where we weren't really seeing the progress that we were hoping for. So we decided to focus the research and the event specifically on um, Asia Pacific. And that was very well received. And we have a lot of um, great stakeholders, a really active and engaged community here um, or there in, in Asia Pacific, um, which is keeping this program alive. So that's what we've done over the past two years. Unfortunately, last year, we weren't able to have an event at all because of the pandemic, but we continued to um, do research and launch the survey and um, the report came out at the end of 2020, and we are continuing with um, that research approach this year as well. Thank you. What a fascinating journey. And Asia has come a long way, and the research still shows, though, that it has a long way to go in terms of LGBTQ 
your rights. The most outstanding statistic that the latest research highlighted, which came out in December of last year, is that four out of 10 Asian executives still think that being openly LGBT would hinder their career. Would you like to elaborate on that? Yeah, so we find that um, there's definitely a major divergence between corporate cultures in the West and in many parts of Asia. And oftentimes when you're thinking about um, you know, what attracts people to work at a company um, from a Western context, you're thinking about um, this concept of bringing your whole self to work and being able to be yourself in the workplace and not having to hide who you are. And in many instances, um, you know, this kind of thinking has been trumpeted and celebrated by the most innovative and forward-thinking companies here in Silicon Valley um, or, uh, you know, uh, companies that basically are thought to be at the, at the leaders of their industry and of their field. Um, so, you know, we're talking about Apple, Google, these kinds of very innovative forward-thinking companies. And even places um, that, uh, you know, maybe didn't, seem like they were obviously very pro-LGBT, there's been a made a big shift toward this idea of, you know, you are who you are and you come as you are. And, uh, you know, that that is just part of your identity and it and it brings a dynamism and it brings an innovative spirit into the workplace. And that I think has caught hold in a lot of business cultures in the Western world. Now, in Asia, it's still really different in the sense that um, you might have um, a situation where, you know, some coworkers or people that you're really close to in the office might know about things like your sexual orientation or your sexual identity. But it's very difficult to kind of um, uh, be as open and as kind of formal about declaring yourself as gay or bisexual or transgender in an Asian workplace as it is in the West. And, you know, there's lots of reasons for that. Part of it is just the kind of the, there's not as much appreciation of the kind of uh, bring your whole self to work mentality in Asia. Um, There's also uh, aspects around Um, generation gap. A lot of managers might be of an older generation. A lot of company founders might be of an older generation where LGBT rights were just not discussed. It was, you know, pretty much a verboten subject. And for younger people, it's just, you know, there's not really a sense that, you know, they want to be pushing the envelope in these relatively conservative cultures. So, you know, that statistic about four out of 10 Asian executives thinking that being openly LGBT is a hindrance to their career, you know, that's not terribly surprising, but we would, of course, like to see that needle move a little bit because, you know, compared to Western counterparts, there's still very much a, 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 an exercise of covering and an exercise of concealing who they truly are um, as soon as they step into the, in, as soon as they step into an office. So the research showed that Nearly half of the respondents say enacting more LGBT-friendly workplace policies and practices presents a business opportunity, so it's good for business. 
And also three in five respondents believe that the business world has a fundamental imperative to drive change so that they should be the ones driving the change around LGBT diversity and inclusion. So is there anything companies can do at the management level um, to push this forward? Yeah, so what's interesting about that first statistic that you mentioned is is it's one of the most prominent places in the survey where we actually did see progress around that idea of the business opportunity around LGBT-friendly workplace policies and practices. And part of that relates to this idea of the pink dollar, which basically means that if you're a company that's being seen um, in the public eye and a brand identity as LGBT friendly, you might have a market that you can tap into. It's been you know, widely reported that there's you know, a lot of buying power in the LGBT community, kind of no matter where you are in the world, even if it's not necessarily a completely open um, community in, in that culture, there's still a lot of buying power there. And those kind of messages from an external brand perspective do resonate with those consumers. Uh, so that idea of the business opportunity is actually really starting to grow, which is exciting, which is a good thing because it means that it's just sort of opening more pathways for acceptance for, um, uh, you know, broader sort of workplace shifts, even if it is kind of a commercial, even if there is kind of a commercial underpinning, uh, behind it. Uh, and this is obviously something that, We've seen in the West, too, a lot of companies will change their logos to a rainbow during Pride Month because they want to you know, celebrate both their LGBT employees as well as tap into the LGBT market. So money talks. And in a lot of instances, um, you know, what's good for the bottom line might also be good for society, too. And in this case, this is this is kind of what we're seeing now when it comes to sort of this fundamental imperative to drive change around LGBT diversity and inclusion, that's a little bit more of a tricky subject because it's easy for executives to say in the abstract that they are in favor of, um, you know, of, of uh, acceptance and in favor of equality, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, when it comes down to it, when it comes down to their role in the company, when it comes down to what are their companies doing, it's a little bit more challenging. So. You know, what can companies do at the management level? I would really say listen to your staff, um, listen to especially the younger employees, because as I was mentioning, especially in Asia Pacific, it's really the younger generation that's driving change um, and showing, you know, real divergence with um, older generations around LGBT rights. So if you want to create a workplace that is accommodating of younger staff, that is, um, you know, a popular and seen as, um, you know, an innovative cutting edge place that young people want to work at, really listening to those attitudes and opinions and, you know, making sure that your company, that the entire company really steers in the direction that, um, you know, that your staff want to go in, I think is extremely important. So among the regions we surveyed in the 2020 report, are there any insights that you find particularly interesting? Anything surprising or encouraging that you would like to highlight? Yeah, so this was the first year, or 2020 was the first year that we were able to uh, survey uh, executives in different countries 
and really compare country by country responses. So in the past, we had only ever been able to survey Asia Pacific as a broad uh, group. And this year, we really were able to drill down on those country specific differences. And we saw some really interesting findings. In particular, China and India seem to be a little bit further ahead than other countries in the region when it comes to sort of individual executive attitudes. So things like, you know, I'm willing to say wear a rainbow pin at work to show my solidarity with LGBT, even if they're not themselves, even if they don't themselves identify as LGBT. So uh, uh, executives in both China and India answered it to agreed with those kinds of sentiments to a much higher degree than even in, say, Taiwan, where the legal and social environment is ostensibly much more progressive than it is in India or China. So what that sort of says to me is that what we're seeing in those two countries in particular is a relatively progressive business environment that is kind of almost leaping ahead of the political, legal, and social environments in those countries, which is interesting because sometimes you do see businesses you know, coming out in the lead um, on some ish on, you know, social issues. So, um, you know, in the United States, for example, when legislators in different states were trying to pass the so-called bathroom bill that would ban um, uh, transgender people from using the bathroom that conformed with the gender identity of their choice, a lot of high profile companies were pulling their business out of those states. So that was one place where businesses were a little bit, you know, further ahead in terms of their social attitudes than than politics and the law. So we are, I think, we are seeing a little bit of that in in Asia Pacific and um, or in those countries at least. And on the flip side, in a place like Taiwan, it maybe seems to be the case where the business community is a little perhaps behind the legal and social environment, uh, given all the shifts that we've seen there over the past couple of years. That was fascinating. Thank you for joining us today, Michael. It's a very important piece of work we're doing, and I hope we will continue to carry on with Pride and Prejudice and see real changes in Asia. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. If you would like to read the full report, please visit our website at perspectives.eiu.com and search for Pride and Prejudice. You will see all the relevant content we have published over the years or check our show notes for a link to the report. And if you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any aspect of work from the Economist Intelligence Unit, please email us at asiaperspectives at economist.com. Happy Pride, and please subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode.